This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting from Johannesburg. On the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa, I'm Zama Nyuswa, Nyuswa, driving the show with Amanda Machak on the news. We're signing Matebula with economics and sports with Frigile Lingwati. Top stories in Africa Digest this hour. Authorities in the Central African countries alarmed by the spread of arms in the region and the spread of cancer globally continues to cause worry. In economics, Nigeria Central Bank holds interest rates at 12% and in sport, the Commonwealth Games Federation General Assembly is impressed with South Africa's presentation. But first the news with Amanda. Thank you, Zamak. Good evening. Nearly a dozen parents of the more than 200 kidnapped Nigerian schoolgirls will never see their daughters again since the mass abduction of the schoolgirls by Islamic militants three months ago. At least 11 of their parents have died in their hometown, Chibok, is under siege from Boko Haram. According to a health worker in the region, fathers of kidnapped girls were among 51 bodies brought to Chibok Hospital after an attack on the nearby village of Kwatakari this month. At least four more parents have died of heart failure, high blood pressure and other illnesses that the community blames on trauma due to the abduction. South Africa's International Relations Minister Maite Nkwana Mashabane says the government will soon dispatch a team to Israel and Palestine to convey its growing concern about the escalating violence there. Former Deputy Minister Aziz Bahad will lead the team. Nkwana Mashabane says President Jacob Zuma will also invite Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas for a working visit to South Africa. She has been speaking during her budget vote in the National Assembly. Nkwana Mashabane has condemned Hamas for firing rockets into Israel as well as Israel's ground invasion of Palestine. The invasion of the Gaza Strip will stand in the way of rebuilding Palestinian institutions and infrastructure that has been destroyed so far. We equally condemn the continuing firing of records by Hamas into Israel, putting lives of innocent civilians at risk. Both parties must end all forms of aggression aggression, uh, towards one another. The UK government and the United Nations Children's Fund, UNICEF, have hosted a first-ever girls' summit today calling for urgent action on female genital mutilation, or FGM, and child marriage. According to newly released data, more than 130 million women and girls have experienced some form of FGM in 29 countries in Africa and the Middle East, with more than 700 million women married while they were still children. UNICEF's Chief of Child Protection, Susan Bissell. 
If we look at the drivers of child marriage, most certainly lack of education or access to education is a factor. But I think probably the most important driver of both FGMC and child marriage are social norms and attitudes towards women and girls. And so wherein in societies uh, women and girls are you know, not considered free and equal with boys and men, these are oftentimes the outcomes. Now on female genital mutilation and cutting, just let me dwell for a moment on social norms. We know that it's families within communities that practice female genital mutilation and cutting, they most likely have done so for many, many years. And because the community's behavior depends on one another, it really requires collective action to create change. Exiled Swazis living in the United Kingdom will stage a demonstration at the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow tomorrow against the attendance of their country's sport minister, David Cruzer Ngampalala. The former head of the riot police is accused of torturing and killing pro-democracy activists. The exiled Swazis are also calling for the release of imprisoned human rights activists, such as student leader Maxwell Lamini. Others include human rights lawyer Tulani Maseko and prominent editor Begi Makubu, who have been detained for publishing articles that criticized continued threats to judicial independence in Africa's last absolute monarchy. And finally, Lesotho's King Litsia III has received $50,000 to renovate the maternal wing of Scott Hospital in Moria, where he was born on July 17, 1963. The donation is a local bank's response to the king's call on his 50th birthday last year and to mark his birthday this year. Lesotho has one of the highest maternal mortality statistics, where out of every 100,000 women who give birth, more than 1,000 die, compared to to an average 500 in sub-Saharan Africa and 16 in developed countries. The king has also received $6,000 from the bank to renovate a school named after his father, King Mushrasha II. The school was gutted in a fire last year. Channel Africa News. Weapons are spreading at an alarming rate through Cameroon to Nigeria and Central African Republic, where they're feeling conflicts and increasing the arsenals of armed groups and terrorists. At the initiative of the United Nations, the military and civil society in Central African countries are examining the impacts of the illicit arms and peace and security. Moki Kinzeka reports from Yaoundé. The Regional Center for Small Arms and Light Weapons in Nairobi, Kenya, and the United Nations Program of Action Against Arms and Light Weapons in a report examined in Yaoundé states that the persistence and the complication of wars in Africa are partially due to small arms proliferation. Kenyan-born Dan Masano of the UN program says up to 2013, armed conflicts in 20 African states including new trouble spots like Central African Republic, Nigeria and Sudan, costed Africa a staggering 18 billion United States dollars every year. Small arms has been a, a big challenge to the continent because they've been used to fight wars here and there. They are in the hands of civilians. They cause damage, loss of life and all that. You've seen the Eastern DRC. You've seen weapons moving from Libya into the sub-Saharan part of the continent. And uh, it is serious. You can see the loss of lives. So it is something that we have to fight. Ngalim Eugene of the non-governmental organization African Youth Forum for Peace 
says Libyan weapons were spreading through Sudan and Chad to Nigeria and Central African Republic, where violence has claimed thousands of lives in the past two years. But of late, they have noticed that Cameroon's seaport in Douala has been a transit zone. It's a serious security issue for Cameroon. These are all kinds of arms you could find. Firearms, then guns, these are all small arms. And these are the arms that are highly used by armed gangs. You take the Central African Republic, it's a whole issue because most of those weapons, they end up in hands that are not supposed to be in possession of these arms. Ngalim Eugene says they are asking African countries to ratify the Kinshasa Convention for the Eradication of Small Arms. Besides insisting on the need for countries to ratify the convention, the civil society groups are asking women and children to advise their husbands not to use such weapons. UN's Stella Ward of the Program Against Small Arms and Light Weapons says women have an important role to play. This is what we call the Karamoja region. That's the border region between Ethiopia, Sudan, Kenya and Uganda where the Karamoja women have been encouraged to come out as, as peacemakers so that instead of encouraging their men to go and fight, they've instead called on their men to sit down, discuss peace and uh, put down their arms. And as a result, we are seeing a lot of arms being uh, surrendered to the government and uh, we can say this region is becoming more and more peaceful because of the role of women. Stella Ward also says producing countries should avoid selling arms to rebel movements. CAR's Colonel Simplice Alfred told VOA that civilians and militias remain in control of most weapons in his country because of the lack of an effective security system. Uh, he says strategic planning between his government, the United Nations and other international bodies is needed if his country really wants to stop illicit arms circulation that has torn CAR apart. The United Nations estimates that some 8,000 Africans have perished in recent years as a result of the proliferation of small arms and light weapons. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzuka in Yaoundé. At least 94 people have been killed in less than a month in attacks across Kenya. Somali's al-Qaeda-linked militants al-Shabaab have claimed responsibility for many of the attacks. However, Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta has suggested that local politicians are actually behind the incidents. For more on this, Sakina Kamwendo spoke to Omonoa Espisu, spokesperson for the Kenyan president. It's not a question of... Uh agreeing that somebody has claimed responsibility when intelligence suggests the uh, opposite. Because in these things, you look at what the intelligence is, and if the intelligence suggests that there are local political networks, then the president has to believe that it is the local political networks responsible for the attacks. Al-Shabaab doesn't have a history of killings in which it's kills men and, and boys and asks women to move out of their homes. Al-Shabaab kills indiscriminately. It's done that before. It will do that again. And this is just not its style. So 
Warratik has claimed responsibility. The, the facts really don't match its claims. So what has been done to follow up on uh, these allegations uh, that local people are in fact behind the spate of attacks? Well, one, our both intelligence and, and police investigators are on the ground looking at those angles. We do have special military forces in the area because this area is in, in, in Lamu, mainly at the coast, in the, in the border areas of Somalia. We've got vast areas of forest there, and these people responsible for the killing have mainly come out, killed, and gone back to the forest. And the special forces have been in that forest now for, for the last two weeks. They have themselves killed quite a few of the attackers, and we do hope that uh, they will bring this to an end. And, uh, of course, you do speak of the intelligence uh, that the Kenyan government has at its disposal. Have the attacks subsided since you have put that intelligence to use? In, in a sense, yes. I mean, there, there remain sporadic attacks, as normally there would be. But the number of deaths that have come out of this have, have gone substantially down. They are not across the country. They are limited to a small part of the country, in, in Lamu, in, in, at, the, at the Kenyan coast. The rest of the country remains largely serene. Uh, there haven't been incidents in, in the capital Nairobi for, for a long while now. And so we do, we do believe that this, this, is, this, in fact, is being managed properly. And uh, just before I let you go on another story, um, has it been confirmed, uh, the story about this group who are known as Anonymous, who've been responsible for hacking of Twitter accounts, has the government uh, actually been able to confirm who this group are? Uh, Because it was said that uh, they have been hacking the Twitter accounts of the Defence Force and that of the military spokesperson. Uh, Who they are, not yet, but uh, has the government reclaimed those accounts? Yes, it has. The next stage is now to figure out who it was and to, to bring the, 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 the criminals to book. But uh, we, we, that, we do have uh, the, the accounts back in possession of, of the Kenya Defense Forces. And have you put any new security measures in place to ensure that it doesn't happen again? Yeah, very, very much so. We've, we've got heightened uh, security on, on all sites that deal with government information now. That was Manoa Espisu, spokesperson for Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta, speaking to Sakina Kamwenda from the Kenyan capital, Nairobi. The dozen South Africans who took part in this year's Trek for Mandela Challenge by climbing Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania are back home. The explorers drove through some African countries, disturbing, san- distributing sanitary towels to select schools and discussing the legacy of South Africa's former president, Nelson Mandela, with the youth. The aim of this expedition was to raise awareness of the plight of young girls. The project also formed part of the International Nelson Mandela Day on the 18th of this month. Richard Mabaso, concept innovator for the Drug for Mandela and Caring for Girls initiative, says it's as tough as it was, the expedition went well. Actually, all of us didn't realize that how big this was in terms of doing both the drive and climb. But in the end, it was all worth it. We wanted to invite and involve all other states, or not all, but as many as we could get to, which at this point was Botswana, Zambia, and Tanzania, that we feel very much strong about the fact that they played a major role in us obtaining 
the 20 years of democracy. So we were trying to highlight the fact that South Africa was not alone in that. Threat for Mandation protein expedition was more than just the annual 67,000 packets of sanitary pads that we collect. So it was more engaging other young people under the theme, Youth Moving Africa Forward. What was the response and or the reception in the different countries that you went to? The response has been amazing. Countries like Botswana, where we partnered with the second Pimile Masira Foundation, we even today still getting calls where they are telling us that in Botswana, the country actually, people are trying to find ways of how can they be involved. And, you know, we were in Tanzania, you know, the, the, the feedback was that, you know, it was too short. We should have extended the dialogues and maybe spent had two days of it. Our high commissioner in Zambia, they also said the same thing. They wish we could have done more to work together with other young people, with other organizations in, in the African continent to do good not only on the 18th of July, but beyond. And what did you find that were the similarities between the challenges of the girls in the different countries? Most of them were similar because, you know, issue of youth unemployment, issue of education system, if there were issues of young girls that end up missing school because of their mental cycles. There were a lot of similarities. And with our dialogue, having listened to them, they all had one thing in common, saying we should stop talking already. You know, the, the, the dialogue should be there, but they felt that it should be limited. We now need to action because most of us, you know, have been to conferences which were just sent to be talk shops and nothing happened afterwards. So all the young people that from Botswana, in Tanzania, they were talking about we need more of this. Time for Africa to start doing things for its own development and growth. Now let's talk about your summit to the very highest peak of Africa, that is Uhuru Peak on the Mount Kilimanjaro. How did that go? Well, everyone was in high spirit when we got to Tanzania, obviously, on the 13th. And on the 14th, we all flew to Kilimanjaro. So on the 14th of July, we started the trekking of Kilimanjaro, which was fairly easy. The second day, you know, people sort of got used to it. The third day, that's when some of our trekkers started feeling some headaches because they were already above 1,500 meters above sea level. So, you know, it's a point where most of them have never been before. Day four was really hectic when we're starting to hit four and a half thousand meters above sea level. And then obviously the last day, day five, where we literally had about 19 hours of trekking. Got to the summit camp about three, four o'clock. And then we had to have dinner then and sleep because we were starting trekking again at about 11 p.m. So it was quite a, a big hour because yeah, people literally had two or three hours of sleep and they we had to start trekking. The weather was quite cold. I think at one point, I remember Kibusiso saying it was up to minus 16 degrees Celsius. Tough, but we're glad that all the trekkers managed to get to, to the summit point. You mentioned earlier the importance of not only um, doing good on Nelson Mandela Day, but carrying on to do good even pre or post that. You're back home. Uh, you came back yesterday. Where to from here? 
We're back home and as I'm talking to you right now, I'm on the road uh, because we had to hit the ground running. From next week, we starting, as we mentioned at the launch, that our first point of distribution would be a school chosen by the Nelson Mandela Foundation or Mrs. Rasmussen, which will be starting to mobilize the, the stock to be sent to the school and come up with a date for, for the distribution. That's Richard Mabaso, concept innovator for the Trek for Mandela and Caring for Girls initiative, talking to Homosomopolan. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The international organization WaterAid has welcomed the United Nations Open Working Group's final proposal for UN Substantial Goals, which include a separate ambitious target to bring basic access to water and sanitation to everyone, everywhere, by 2013. The UN's report, released last Saturday, sets out 17 proposed goals to eradicate extreme poverty and ensure development is sustainable. It followed a year and a half of negotiation by 70 UN member states. The report now goes to all members of the UN General Assembly for further consideration, negotiation and amendment before the final goals are set in September 2015. Elaborating more on the proposed goal number six, which seeks to address the global water and sanitation crisis, is Water Aid Campaigns Officer Ross Bailey. We believe that by having a sustainable development goal on water and sanitation included in whatever is ratified in 2015 will allow for a more effective approach. It's absolutely critical that we make sure that clean water and basic sanitation come together. Where you don't have this, you still leave populations at risk of diarrhoea and of related illnesses. Without putting water and sanitation together, it still means that you can have clean water in school but girls dropping out because there isn't a private toilet to accommodate them. And then more widely, when we're looking at the importance of this SDG, it's a really, really important step forward in the overall process. We've seen the report of a high-level panel of eminent persons selected by Ban Ki-moon, which came out in 2013, and that recommended a goal on water sanitation and hygiene. We've now seen a proposed goal on water and sanitation by the Open Working Group, and we believe that this hopefully builds momentum to really tackling the water and sanitation crisis and ensuring that it's given the prominence that it deserves when heads of state meet in New York next year to ratify this. Now, Ross, when we look at the current Millennium Development Goals, we see that, as reported, the MDG focusing on sanitation is the most off-track of the targets. From a water aid perspective, what went wrong? When we look at the Millennium Development Goals, there are many positive things about them, but sanitation remains one of the most off-track of all of the targets. And I think, realistically, what we have to focus on here is that it was introduced as an afterthought. Organisations like WaterAid and many CSOs around the world lobbied hard for it to be included, but it wasn't included until 2002. And I think we can all understand that things that are introduced late tend to get less focus and less progress. 
And I think there simply hasn't been enough focus by either developing or donor countries on the issue of sanitation. Sanitation has not been given the political priority that perhaps other areas have given. It's not uncommon, for example, for sanitation not to have its own budget line, which makes it extremely difficult for civil society organisations and citizens in countries to be able to see whether spending is going up or down. So I think these are just some of the reasons why sanitation has been extremely challenging. You've just acknowledged yourself that there have been, however, some gains that have been noted from the Malaysian development goals. Now with regards to water and sanitation, what has been achieved? So there have been gains and I think the Millennium Development Goals have been an important way of focusing countries on a certain number of issues. The MDG target on water, which was to half the proportion of people without access, has been met. But I think one of the things we have to focus on here is that that's been largely because of progress in a couple of countries with very large populations, such as China. When it comes to sanitation, we have seen a number of countries meet the target on sanitation, but 79 are still off track. And some of those, such as Nigeria, are actually losing ground. Um, They're going backwards in terms of the percentage of the population who have access to sanitation. And at current rates of progress, we're looking at sub-Saharan Africa needing another 150 years to reach their current target on sanitation, never mind delivering access for all. Whilst we have made gains on sanitation in some countries, we're also seeing huge inequalities of those. The target was to halve the proportion of people without access, and that means that not necessarily does it come equally. Now, Ross, WaterAid also commands the specific mention of women and girls in the proposed Sustainable Development Goals. Elaborate more on the significance of this in relation to water and sanitation. We were pleased to see reference within the Sustainable Development Goal proposal on including women and girls and and vulnerable populations and inequalities of access is incredibly important. So for women and girls, we see often extreme issues caused by a lack of water and sanitation. Women and girls are usually the ones given the chore of walking long distances to fetch water if a water point's not nearby. They're the ones who end up caring for family members made ill by unsafe water and they're at risk of illness, injury or assault if they do not have a private safe place to go to the toilet. It's not just women and girls. So the language of vulnerable people, which was included, mm. you know, covers disabled people, older people, people living with diseases like HIV, AIDS, those living in remote or rural areas. Now, lastly, Ross, perhaps the most burning question, is there confidence from WaterAid that the 2015 Sustainable Development Goals on Water and Sanitation will be achievable by 2030? We believe that the challenge of overcoming the water sanitation crisis will be a difficult one, but it's one that is possible with the right political prioritisation and determination by member states. In terms of it being achievable, we see that one third of the UN agreeing to prioritise water sanitation is a massive achievement. You know, we very much need to make sure that the water and sanitation goal and the targets on water sanitation and hygiene make it into the final list of the SDGs, and that's going to require a lot more negotiation in the months ahead. We fundamentally do believe that the targets that have been proposed can be achieved, but it's going to need significant political will, financing and prioritisation by everyone. That's Ross Bailey, campaigns officer at WaterAid on the line from London in the UK, talking to Channel Africa's Jane Matebola.
Cancer is increasing across the globe at an alarming rate and unless proper prevention strategies are put in place, it will put an enormous burden on public health care systems. This is, not, this is just one of the issues that emerged from the 8th Stop Cervical Breast and Prostitute Cancer Conference underway in Namibia. First ladies from across the African continent, including South Africa's Tobeka Madiba Zuma, are at the event to lend their support. Reporter Melanie Moses is also there. The statistics are startling, and indications are they're going to get worse. In the year 2000, there were just over 10 million new cases of cancer, 6 million deaths, and 25 million people living with the illness. By 2012, there were 14 million new cases and just over 8 million deaths. But it's estimated that by 2030, there will be around 26 million new cases of cancer, 16 million deaths, and 75 million people around the globe living with cancer. Cervical cancer is particularly common, killing one woman every two minutes. The tragedy is that it is preventable. But developing countries, like those in Africa, often lack the resources needed to save lives. The UN Population Fund's Adimole Olajid explains. Cost is a critical factor on the African continent. And we do know that the cost of managing chronic illnesses like cancer is such that it can tip families and individuals into financial catastrophe. Where women who happen to be the face of poverty in Africa cannot access certain services because of financial limitations. Unfortunately for us as a continent, we continue to suffer from the consequences of terrorism, armed conflicts, and forced displacement of large populations. When forced displacement occurs, women and children bear the brunt of that challenge. One speaker shared how a woman had to sell her mattress just so she could pay for transport to a health care center to receive treatment for cancer. Research has shown that there's a shortage of around 5,000 radiotherapy machines in developing countries. Egypt and South Africa hold 60% of Africa's radiotherapy resources. But this isn't the only issue. Convincing people to go for screenings is another challenge. Experts say many still believe that cancer only affects the rich or that it's a death sentence and cannot be cured. Doin Oliwole, executive director of Pink Ribbon Red Ribbon, is on a mission to change that perception with the community-centered approach. In the past two years, working with Zambia, Botswana and Tanzania, we have been able to screen over 100,000 women for cervical cancer. We educate communities, we help to vaccinate girls, we support increasing access to life-saving care. Olajid says cultural factors also play a role in the late detection of cancer, particularly among men. As young boys, we are groomed to ignore pain. When a young man experiences pain, he's probably referred to as a woman. And so mild pain is ignored by men. And men would ignore early symptoms of ill health, making the prognosis and management of cancers very late. Tobeka Madiba Zuma, one of South Africa's first ladies, addressed delegates on how South Africa is managing cancer. She celebrated the fact that over 300,000 young girls in our country have already received the HPV vaccine. It has the potential to reduce cervical cancer deaths by as much as two-thirds. So if we all extend our hands to help one another, we can overcome all the challenges that face us. And I'm excited to see and witness what the future holds. The Stock Cervical Cancer Conference provides us with a platform to honor all our women and men 
And for those who have failed in some way, let us heed their call, which is, we are not dying, we are the living. Let us live until we die. That's South Africa's First Lady Tobega Madiba Zuma ending that report from Melanie Moses in Vintok, Namibia. It's time now for the news headlines with Amanda. Good evening. UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon has urged Israel and the Palestinians to stop the bloodshed in Gaza as he sought to broker an end to a fortnight of deadly violence. Nigerian President Goodluck Jonathan has met for the first time with many parents of 219 kidnapped schoolgirls and dozens of classmates who managed to escape from their Islamic extremist captors. And eight people from a Tanzanian medical institute have been arrested after 85 bags containing body parts were found in the port city of Dar es Salaam. Police say human limbs, fingers, ribs and skulls were in the bags discovered in a landfill site in the Bunju suburb. Those are your news headlines. An international forum on community land resource rights that recently took place in Lima has had women from across the world calling for the inclusion of indigenous women's perspective and participation in the dialogue around national and international climate change adaption and mitigation policies. Celine Bibiane Abdenet, president of the African Women's Network for Community Management of Forest, says the situation of women in Africa, Asia and Latin America is the same when it comes to land tenure rights and climate change. The National Organization of Andean and Amazonian Women of Peru and the Rights and Resources Initiative held an international indigenous women's forum and workshop, Land and Climate Change, challenges and opportunities towards the 20th United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change Conference scheduled for Lima later this year. The meeting brought together women participants from Asia, Africa and Latin America to examine the intersection of climate change and women's rights to their land and forests to produce recommendations for the Peruvian Ministry of Environment to promote at COP20. Cecil Bibian Njebet, president of African Women's Network for Community Management of Forests, explains. The workshop is very interesting and I think it was a good opportunity for women as a whole, but also the administration, military, the work in climate change in Lima to take part to that workshop and to learn a little bit more about these women challenges, such as their participation to decision making, their participation to climate change processes, the security for their land and territory problems they are facing. So it was, and I can say that it was a very, very useful workshop we came about with some effective and very relevant contributions to the advancement of women, women rights, women tenure rights, women security rights to land and territory. The situation of women in Latin America, Asia and Africa 
when it comes to women's rights, land rights and climate change has some similarities as well as different levels of operational structure. Women as a whole, being African women, Asia or Latin America, they are all the same. They face almost all the same problems. They face almost all the same challenges when we refer to how land, how natural resources, how climate change processes and how gender, mainstreaming and involvement are considered in those various regions of the world. You will understand that as just been to Lima, indigenous women or rural women in Lima or in Peru are facing almost the same problems like those of from Africa. And you will understand that the state still has the almost entire power in decision-making when we're dealing with climate change processes, rent processes, tenure processes, as many others. The particularly, maybe the main difference is that the impact or the level of power or the level of decision-making power or the level of involvement or participation of women in Peru or in Latin America is a little bit higher in administration and more than in Africa. You will understand that the state may be not always the central administration, but at least at the local administration people in Peru or in Latin America are more inclined to collaborate or to involve women into the various processes as far as climate change. And you also see that they are working a little bit more closely with decentralized structure like mayors. You have the councils in Peru who are trying to devote some of the resources to women leaders, women associations, and um, for them to, to try to implement some of their activities. The weakness, the weaknesses I have noticed when I compare the two regions lying on the capacity and the organizational capacity of the women. In Africa, women seem to be more organized and they act more collectively than in Peru, I may say, or in Latin America. They are a little bit like less, less organized, so it's difficult. Even if they have to face in front of them the power of administration, it's difficult for them to advocate all together for their rights because their organizational dynamics or structure is a little bit fragile when I compare to what goes on in Africa. When you may stand together, the move together, they are very well, better organized in association networking. But the difference is that women in Africa they don't have the resources compared to the women in Spain or in Latin America. A lot of progress has been made by women in Africa to be able to have land tenure rights as well as women's rights. And for the local government, as far as we are concerned, I know that it's still a thing 
forward to get into more criminal security rights for the women and be IT women or rural women. But we also are making some progress because we have been able to get into decision-making structure in the red processes, climate change processes, and in the land tenure processes. This is where we have a little bit more power because we are in those decision-making structures now. We have decision-making positions and we are organizing ourselves to influence all these processes. I can cite, for example, we have succeeded to get into foreign reform process organized by the government and we have proposed. We have not yet got the final new law on, on foreign management, but at least we have proposed some of the articles in the law where which to guarantee women access and women property rights to foreign and foreign resources. We are also into land tenure reform process, which is very, very difficult and difficult to other stakeholders. It's still dominated by the, by the government, but anyway, we have succeeded to build strategic alliances with traditional chiefs, and we are in that process now, and we are working to propose new a new law how women think a land issue should be organized and should be managed in the future, uh, considering their rights. That was Cecil Bibian Njebet, President of Africa Women's Network for Community Management of Forests. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Wandile Kalipa in Johannesburg. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And now it's time for an economics update with Wisani Matebul. Good evening. Thanks, Zama. The world's biggest platinum mine, Anglo-American Platinum, has unveiled plans to sell its mines in South Africa in a move to dispose underperforming assets. The move comes following a five-month-long strike in South Africa's platinum sector. Emplat says that it plans to sell its Union and Rustenburg mines as well as its Pandora JV operation. The sale could sell 20,000 employees lose their jobs. Economist Davi Roth explains. 
clearly what they are saying is that they're concerned about their investments and they would rather want to exit that investment. I don't think necessarily that we're going to lose all those uh, job opportunities. What is likely to happen is that they like to sell these operations to smaller uh, investors. The smaller investors are likely uh, to rather go for an easier buck to make easier money, and that means that they're probably going to go for easier um, you know, mining conditions. Uh, they're not necessarily going to invest as much as Angley would have invested. And over time, certainly, the number of jobs that could have been in, uh, created and the number of jobs that we have will probably be, some of the jobs will be in danger. So Uganda's top three sugar producers increased output by 17.6% in the first six months of the year. However, conflict in major market South Sudan has left them trying to find buyers for a growing pile of unsold stock. Uganda consumes about 350,000 tons of raw sugar a year and government wants more investment to meet rising local demand which is forecast to double by 2030. The industry has to contend with fighting in Uganda's northern neighbor, the South Sudan, which is a key market for sugar and other exports from the East African country. Uganda's main producers will be hurt if they cannot find new markets. A trade and business delegation from Italy is in Johannesburg, South Africa, to explore business opportunities. Italy is one of South Africa's leading trading partners. South Africa is considered to be the economic gateway to sub-Saharan Africa, while Italy is considered to be the same thing to Europe. Antonio Simato is the chairperson of the Italian South African Chamber of Trade and Industries. There's uh, uh, foodstuffs, uh, there's automotive, uh, there's cosmetics. I think those are the three major, major uh, industries that uh, these uh, delegations represent. South Africa is the gateway to Africa, and those are the emerging markets that they're looking for, because uh, there's a whole, there's a whole lot of potential business that is untapped, and that, that's what they're looking for. They're looking for new business. Uh, the rest of the world is basically saturated, and they're obviously pursuing markets that, that can be developed. Coca-Cola reported a lower-than-expected quarterly revenue as uh, sales in North America, its biggest market, failed to show growth for the second straight quarter. Shares of the soft drinks maker fell as much as 2% in U.S. pre-market trade. The stock has gained 2.6% this year. Unit case volume sales were flat in North America in the quarter and in June, despite increased marketing around the FIFA World Cup and the launch of its uh, Share a Coke campaign. The findings of the one of the largest study of its kind, the 2014 Global Trend Survey, has been released. The survey, completed by 16,000 people, compares the attitudes and behaviors of citizens of 20 key countries around the world, including Argentina, China, France, and South Africa, amongst others. It was conducted by UK market research group Ipsos Mori. Ipsos Mori CEO Ben Page. It covers most of the G20 countries, some of the largest economies in the world. But in Africa, we've only included South Africa. The countries are there, are most of the ones you might expect, like America, Japan, Germany, China, uh, Russia, um, South Korea, Brazil. So a lot of the biggest countries, France, um, Italy, Australia. But we are miss- I must confess, we, in Africa, we are missing certainly some of the giants like Nigeria. So it's certainly not perfect, but it, is, it does give us a pretty good idea about the, the G20 countries and some of the largest economies in the world and the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China. 
Nigeria's central bank held interest rates at 12%, keeping them at the same level as the last two years. But its new governor said he will be seeking a gradual reduction in rates over the next five years. Governor Godwin Mfiele at his first monetary policy committee meeting since he was sworn in last month has flagged underlying inflationary pressures as one of the reasons to be cautious and hold the policy rate as it is. He says the bank is satisfied with relative stability in the macroeconomy and prices and that it will come a moderation in inflation. Let's look at the markets. The dollar 10.63 South African rands, 8.72 Botswana Pulis and 6.09 Zambian Quaches. Also trading at 0.58 to the British pound and 0.73 to the euro. Moving on now to commodities. Gold $1,311. Platinum $1,481 the finance brand crude oil 107 dollars 87 cents per barrel and that's how it's looking and now for sports with feeling what Now, sports update this hour. We're kicking off with the Commonwealth News. South Africa's coastal city of Durban has been thrown into the international spotlight following an impressive and professional presentation to the Commonwealth Games Federation General Assembly in Glasgow. South African Sports Minister Figidem Balula, along with Saskok President Gideon Sam, Saskok Chief Executive Tabi Reddy, and Head of Sport for the City of Durban, Vuzi Mazibugo, produced a slick presentation ahead of the other candidates for the 2022 Games, the Canadian city of Edmonton. South Africa's ability and proven track record in hosting major events, including the football, rugby and cricket World Cups, was a strong theme of the presentation, as was well the fact that sport was a powerful tool in uniting the country and that Africa was yet to stage the Commonwealth Games. South African's printing cessation Agani Simbine views the Glasgow Commonwealth Games that get underway on the 23rd of July as the perfect platform to fulfill his dream of breaching the 10-second barrier in the 100-meter dash. Simbine became the second fastest South African man at the South African Senior Athletics Championship in April in South Africa's capital city, Pretoria, where he posted a time of 10.02 seconds, four split seconds off the national record mark of 9.98 seconds set by Simon Mahakwe. The two national benchmarks allowed both athletes to qualify for the world showpiece. Little noise was made about Simbina's exploits as they were overshadowed by Mahakwe, who is eight years his senior. The Games will be the first time the 20-year-old Simbina will represent the country at such a grand stage. And on to football news, South African national under-20 side have arrived safely in Burkina Faso as they start their West African tour. This in preparation for the crucial last leg of the African Youth Championship qualifiers against Cameroon at the end of next month. They will play against Burkina Faso on Wednesday, then face Mali, Cote d'Ivoire and Senegal before returning home in two weeks' time. Team coach Ephraim Sheikh Mashaba is concerned that he doesn't have all his players for this tour. The under-19 in Durban 
you've got the best nations. You've got Portugal, you've got Arsenals, you've got name them, which is a, it will be a good exposure to our boys. They'll be able to know what we expect as they go on. But let me say, the interprovincial tournament, this kind of tournaments, remember when our under-20s qualified for Malaysia World Cup and our under-23s qualified for the Sydney Olympics. And then we quali- our under-20 qualifies for the African Youth Championships, which was hosted by Morocco. It was through these interprovincial tournaments. And in local football, towards the end of last season, Pirates coach Vladimir Vermezovic promised that fans should watch out for a new team, believing fully on his philosophy for the new season. And he believes that starting with the Soviet derby in the pre-season tournament, the Culling Black Label on Saturday, they will demonstrate what they will be about in the 2014-2015 season. It's not easy. You know, you could see today the, the training session is more than two hours. There is everything... I'm very happy because uh, we didn't have any any serious injury, you know, and uh, uh, players are, they they will be ready for sure. It's a good squad, you know. Maybe our main weapon for for the next season is because this team is already played one two seasons together, you know, and you know normally when you played in in indoor soccer with your friends, if you played three four years, you know you know each other and. Uh, without watching, you can play, and uh, also I hope that our team is ready for for uh, good games. You know, I said in August, but uh, like I said before, you know, sometimes I'm talking too much, but you will see maybe on Saturday different pirates. And South Africa's free state businessman Max Shabalala is the new owner of APSA Premiership side Bloemfontein Celtic. Shabalala and his family have bought the team from the Augusti brothers after weeks of uncertainty. Shabalala, who also owns a third division side, Roses United, says he's excited about his achievement. I'm so excited. And uh, I need to, before I say anything, to thank the Augustus. Aiki, his brother Jimmy, I mean, they've guided, they didn't only sell the team over. They've guided us through these processes. What needs to be done and everything. I think our lawyers, their lawyers also, and my lawyer, what that helped us a lot. You know, I'm saying, I mean... You can see this deal, they didn't do it in that phase. For that matter, even today, when we are finalizing today, it was agreed unanimously when I requested, it was my request, to say that uh, IT and them must help us through. And there was no questioning, there was no nothing. They accepted and said, listen, next, we want success for you, for your family. Let's make sure that we help you through this and everything is happening. Understand? Finally, with golf news, South African golfer Jacques Blau says he's looking forward to the Vodacom origins of golf in Arabella. Blau is one of the most consistent performers. He has won it twice on the series last year and started this year's series with a finish of fifth at the Euphoria. He says he hopes this season tournament series will assist him to qualify for the web.com in the U.S. Michael Flesmas reports. It launched the careers of Louis Wersteis and Brandon Grace and George Kutsia and sunshine to a professional Jacques Blau is hoping the Vodacom origins of golf presented by Samsung can do the same for him. This six-tournament series is the backbone of the Sunshine Tour's winter schedule with the second tournament of 2014 teeing off at Arabella on Wednesday. Blau won twice on the series last year and is looking for another win as he prepares to try and qualify for America's Web.com Tour at the end of this year. 
I mean, it's a good, great stepping stone for us to play out here. So um, to, to win, it obviously means a lot to me. So hopefully I can take it forward going uh, later this year to Webster Conkey Schools. Michael Flismus, Arabella. That's the Sport News this hour. This is Africa Digest. Recapping the top stories this hour, authorities in the Central African countries alarmed by the speed of arms in the region and the spread of cancer globally continues to cause worry. In economics, Nigeria's central bank holds interest rates at 12% and in sports, the Commonwealth Games Federation General Assembly is impressed with South Africa's presentation. That wraps up Africa Digest from myself, Zaman Yusuf, producer Luanda Maome, and uh, the rest of the Africa Digest team. Thank you for listening. For comments on the show, please email info at channelafrica.org or SMS plus 2782-332-5905. Taking us to the top of the hour is Sunday by the Soil. Beautiful black eyes. Gone a yum, she kills me every time when she smiles. Educated black sister with a conscious mind. Even though I say so myself, she's my type. Turning me up pretty much like a mama's beer. Using nothing but to boot the back of Bendy Bisa. Sometimes she fell, I'm done with young Bandisa. Profound sister. the only reason you're in But it make you smile I'm making her your bride She's gone now and that's why you singing this song But it make you smile Yeah, you look so sad I mean, she left you bad But make you smile And her again It seems like she's gone And she'll never return But make you smile And sing her again yeah, you act like this girl's the only reason you're in But it make you smile, making her your right She's gone now and that's why you singing this song But make you smile, yeah So sad, I mean, she left you bad on a Sunday A Sunday, you push the back and took my breath away but I hope to see you someday Please believe me when I say In the sour life, you're Mohammed You're the only one I bet I find it It's time to come, let's bump it, son It's Charlie, son, yeah Lorenzi, 
bambuye usoma Efagi panama yake ya makwale mnyama Ndaziri bahuti ya lumbanu ya ndichama Yatulilu mama, umama watulilu dada Eno susi za mshata na lumbano wa ndichama Atangi nide, mataoleze za zise Kama mbute, watu mbane la kusise Uya mlenda lewe, nasenda na uya laipa lewe